0: find out I got an hour less sleep than I thought I was going to get. Um, and maybe you did that as well. And if you don't know, a month or a week from tomorrow is spring. So yay. Yay spring. We still need snow, but I'm excited about, about spring happening. Uh, well, this month is the, the month of March. And then during these first four months of the of this year, as we prepare for celebrating FBC's 150th anniversary at the end of April, we're walking through our um, vision, which is right there. And so if you say it with me again, like we did last week, starts there on the top left, to be a people who embody and proclaim the life-giving fullness of the gospel. So this is our mission statement. And as we walk through our mission statement this month, we're looking at the first or the third portion of that mission statement, which is to embody the life giving fullness of the gospel. What does it mean to embody the gospel? And we introduced this idea last week, looking at the first chapter of James, uh, verses 19 to 27. And in the last two verses of that section, we found really three indispensable, what I would call litmus tests of true religion. And so as we seek to embody the gospel, the first litmus test James gives us in James 1:26 is gracious speech. So he says this: if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. In other words, true religion, truly knowing God and following him, takes a an ability to bridle and control our tongue. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The second litmus test is generous love. So James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, that we would be people who love generously like Jesus loved, especially those who are the most needy, those who are the most vulnerable, that we would advocate for justice for them. And we're going to talk about that next week. And then the final test that James gives us is holy living, to keep oneself unstained from the world? What does it look like to actually look different than the world as we live in the world? And we'll look at that in a couple weeks. So today, we're going to look at how we embody the gospel with gracious speech. What does it look like to embody the gospel with that part of our, our bodies that's right there on the front of our face and that puts out noise and does other things? Um, and we're going to begin by looking at the power of God's work. Word, God's Word. So last week, I said that talk is cheap. And I was referring, of course, to the kind of talk that is not backed up by action. I'm not saying that words themselves are cheap. I'm not saying that speech as, a, as an act is worth nothing, because words themselves are of immense value to God. Okay, so consider, if for a moment, the beginning of the universe, Got it? Astrophysicists tell us that everything started with a grand cataclysmic singularity that they call the Big Bang. However, not one scientist can tell us, using science, the cause of that singularity. They can't even get to the first nanosecond of it. And they certainly can't get before it. They cannot tell us why it happened or where it came from, but the Bible tells us quite clearly the cause. God spoke, and the entire universe came into existence out of nothing. So God said, "'Let there be light,' and there was light.'" God's word came forth and the sun and the moon and the stars, all of the planets, all of the creatures, the water, the mountains, the clouds, and human beings stood at attention in obedience to Yahweh's commands. He spoke and it was. So the New Testament tells us then that, that the world was not just created by the word of God, but that that word is himself, the word of God is himself a divine person. So the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, John tells us, in the beginning of his gospel is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and not one thing that was made was made without him. The Word of God, then, isn't just this impersonal sound waves that come from the mouth of God, not just the impersonal agent of creation, but it is the second person of the Godhead himself. Word matters. Words matter. God the Father delights then even to make Himself known through His Son, Jesus, who, Hebrews tells us, upholds the universe by the word of His power. Get that for a second. Not only did He make the universe, He upholds it by the word of His power. The atoms in your body are holding together right now because Jesus says so. And if it weren't for the word of God, the universe would not exist. You and I would not exist. So God's word shapes reality, forms it. It is reality. His word carries unfathomable power. It's no wonder that we call ourselves a word-centered church. Through his word, God also displays his faithfulness. It's with his word that he makes promises and keeps them. God, Hebrews 6 tells us, God cannot lie. He is truth, and he speaks truth. He's trustworthy. He cannot break his word. We were talking at the lunch table yesterday about things we are allergic to, and Caleb's allergic to three things. I can't remember what they are, but Daisy thought one of them might have been, I think one of them's ungodly women. Is that right? You're allergic (laughs) to ungodly? Yeah. (laughs) Bad attitudes is the other one. And Daisy was trying to guess the third one, and she she said, lying? Is the third one lying? And I said, God's allergic to lying. right?" Right? Yeah, so God's allergic to lying. And Proverbs tells us that every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. God is trustworthy. His word cannot be broken. His promises have shaped the course of the history of the world. His promises Shape our very lives. They shape the context of your life. They are not empty. They're not frivolous. They're not meaningless. Because God doesn't waste His words. Isaiah, fifty-five, verse eleven. My word, God says, that goes forth from my mouth, shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I, for that would accomplish that which I purpose. And it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is powerful, it's effective, it does what he says it will do. And perhaps the most incredible thing God does with his words is to reveal himself to us with his word. In particular, he does that in a book that we call the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. And by this written word, he convicts our hearts... He uses it to convict our hearts, as Hebrews says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. I don't have verse 13 on there, and I can't remember it very well, but it says it cuts basically between soul and spirit, right? Bone and marrow, soul and spirit. It cuts right to our hearts, and it convicts us of our sin. And it also, Romans 10 says... That faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's the word that convicts us. It's the word that calls us to Jesus. It's the word that saves us and gives us life. God's word redeems. Amen. And this is why God places such a premium on our words, on the way that we use our mouths. It's why our use or our misuse of God's word comes with warnings like James 3.1 that Colleen just read for us, and that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be all over, but mainly here in James 3. Not many of you, James writes, should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, knowing that we, and James here includes himself, knowing that we as teachers, especially of God's word, will receive greater judgment because of how we use our words. Stricter judgment. Perhaps Due to their significance, words are perhaps the most difficult thing in our lives to control. So the very next verse, verse 2, says, We all stumble in many ways. We all stumble in many ways, all of us. None of us are sinless. All of us fall short. We stumble. We fall. If someone does not stumble in word or in their speech, he is a perfect person, able even to hold the whole body in check. Think about that for a minute. Even to hold, be able to hold the whole body in check, if you can hold your tongue in check, you can hold your body in check. So James lays out, and the Scriptures really lay out for us, that our words are powerful, like God's words are powerful, and our words can do tremendous harm. God gave us a capacity for language. He gave us mouths so that we could communicate with one another. He gave us mouths so that we can be in relationship with other human beings and with Him, that we could reveal our innermost thoughts, our innermost being to another person. He gave us words so that we could organize reality and create things and perpetuate life and peace. And yet, we so often use our words as weapons. Because we're sinful and we stumble and we use these words to inflict pain and to create and perpetuate conflict and actually cause destruction. A couple of Proverbs address this. This is one of the Proverbs, by the way, favorite things to talk about is how we use our words. Proverbs 12, 18. There is one whose rash words are like, get this, sword thrusts. Proverbs 25, 18. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword, or a sharp arrow. If you lie against somebody and slander their name and, and speak falsely against them, it's like you're battering them with a club. You see, words can cause maximal casualties with minimal effort. It doesn't take, it doesn't take much to be able to say something that hurts people. We, we, have, we do this when we slander, when we, when we spread untruths about people to, to defame their character. Or, or it happens when we, when we throw insults at people or call them names or gossip, talking behind someone's back about them, saying something we wouldn't say to their face to them, to others behind their back. It happens when we cut and jab with, with sarcasm, and I'm a master at this, so I know what I'm talking about here. We cut and jab with sarcasm, and then we follow that up with a self-justifying, I was just kidding. As children, of course, we used to, on the playground, defend ourselves, right? When someone said something about us, we would defend ourselves and say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's noble. It sounds noble, and I'm sure it's, it's good self-talk. But it's simply not true. Words do hurt us. And they can, in fact, be some of the most hurtful realities in the world. Words may not be able to break our bones, but they can do some serious damage. As the Proverb says, Proverbs 18:21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Words can also be used to manipulate and to deceive. This, this happens when we when we create a false picture of ourselves on the outside, through our words, a false picture of what we think, a false picture of what is happening on the outside of, of, of us, on the inside of us, to the outside. And Jesus called this hypocrisy. When we put one picture out here with our words, and yet something completely different is going on in the inside. God calls us to avoid this kind of speech in Ephesians chapter 4:25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And in the end, we have to recognize that God hates it. And yes, I'm using the word hate. God hates it when we use words for evil. Proverbs 6 There are six things the Lord hates seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, pride, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Notice that three out of those seven Things that God hates are how words are misused for evil purposes. Three out of seven, lying, bearing false witness, and creating conflict between brothers, between other people with our words. God says in Proverbs 12 that lying lips are an abomination to him. And in the end, as Jesus himself makes clear, God will hold us accountable for our words. Matthew 12, 36, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. The picture that James gives us as we go back to James 3 is that the tongue is like an arsonist. It's compared to a fire, which if you think about Fire, fire is a tool like any other tool that can be used for good and it can be used for evil, right? Fire, we can warm ourselves, we can cook things, we can heat water, we can cleanse things, purify things with fire, and yet we can also use fire to destroy. So in verse 5, it says, See how small a spark kindles such a large forest fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue proves to be among our members the stainer of the whole body the arsonist of the course of life and is itself set on fire by hell. The tongue is a, it says, world of unrighteousness. Not a thimbleful of unrighteousness, a world of unrighteousness. Literally, the word used there is cosmos, a cosmos of unrighteousness. And this means first that just as the cosmos, the universe, is infinitely larger than we are, the effects of our words go infinitely far beyond us. And second, it means that there is a cosmic overabundance of sin and iniquity and corruption that enters the world through the gates of our mouths. So we're like gatekeepers, and we actually, when we open our mouths and speak Words that are not godly, that we, let un- that we let unrighteousness in, and our tongues are then likened to ar- arsonists, fire lighters, people that start forest fires or burn buildings down, unleashing hell into the world. Our tongue is a gate, we're the gatekeepers, and we can open it up and let hell in or we can keep it out. Think of the different ways that we unleash hell into the world through our words when we blame other people, maybe for something we've done, when we lie or deceive, when we express hatred or rage, when we gossip or when we slander, when we speak evil of others, when we speak filthy, vulgar, crude jokes or obscenities, when we attack others with sarcasm, or just speak foolishness or use derogatory speech, every time we do that, we let a little bit of hell into the world. James goes on to tell us that not only is the tongue an arsonist, but it's also untamable. Verse 7, For every species of animals and birds, reptiles, sea creatures, is tamed and has been tamed by the human species, but no one is able to tame the human tongue, an uncontrollable evil full of deadly poison. And James purposely compares the tongue here to a venomous snake. It's full of deadly poison. And we should be reminded when he does that of an original serpent. The serpent in the garden whose deceptive speech came to Eve in these words, Has God really said poison? Has God really said? Questioning God's word, questioning his character, planting seeds of doubt and pride turning and eventually tainting Adam and Eve's hearts against their good creator. And so when our tongues drip poisonous words, we end up using this God-given faculty of speech we we end up using these mouths that God has given him which should be reflecting God and using that capacity instead to imitate the deceiver and the father of lies instead of imitating the good creator and father of truth we're using our mouths to serve the wrong master and if we're not able to control our tongues then the rest of our lives will be out of control Back to verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. And James even includes himself in that. We all stumble. None of us is perfect. If someone doesn't stumble in word, he is a perfect person, able even to hold the whole body in check. And if our lives are out of control, because our mouths are out of control, how can we expect to embody the gospel? So in order to embody the gospel, to to live the gospel out with our whole beings, The first thing that must happen is that our words must reflect God's words. We must, by God's grace and and with the empowering help of the Holy Spirit, get our tongues under control. But how is that possible when we're just told that we can't do it? (laughs) James just said, nobody can tame the tongue. I think we have to go back up to verse 3 and find out. If we put bits into the mouths of horses in order to persuade them to us or get them to do what we want, to control them, we control their entire body as well. Now, I'll be honest with you, I'm not a huge fan of riding horses. I know there's some of you in here who love horses. They scare me to death. I've told you this story before. It's been a few years and a lot of you are new, so you haven't heard it. It's like a new story. But when I was in middle school, my family went to visit some friends of ours, and they had, uh, just for dinner for the evening, and they had um, two daughters. One was my brother, older brother's age and one was my age, and they both had horses. And so when we went over to visit, the parents said, hey, you should take Ryan, my older brother, and Mike out to, out to see the horses and ride the horses. And we're like, okay, that sounds fun. I've never been on a horse in my life, and I'm probably 12, 13 years old at this time. So they take us out there, and the first thing we do is we, we get on. So the girl gets on. I get on behind her. She's my age, and we ride around on the horse. She kind of shows me what it's like, and then we stop. We get off, and then she says, why don't you try it by yourself? And I'm like, okay, I guess I'll try it. So put my f- foot up in the stirrup. I'm getting up on the horse. I'm like, you know, splaying like this. And right as I'm in that position, she swats the horse in the rear, and it just takes off. And I go tumbling on the ground, and, and she's just, ha, 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 so funny. You're, on, you know, doing this thing. And I'm, yeah, that was great. Thank you. Wonderful. And just like Charlie Brown, I take a second shot. You know, Charlie and Lucy, and Lucy's always trying to get him to kick the football. And every, you know, 6,000 times later, he still takes her up on it and trusts her. So I'm like, okay, I'll try it again, you know. So this time I get foot in the stirrup, get up, and I'm on, and now I have no idea what to do. Can't get the thing to go. I'm not sure how to get it to move and whatnot. And I'm just trying to orient myself with the the saddle and the reins, right? And uh, then guess what she does? Swats the thing in the the backside again, and it just takes off. And I have no idea how to control this horse. And all I want to do is stop. That's it. I don't want to canter or gallop or anything. I just want to stop. And so I'm just trying to get it to stop. And then, after probably about a minute, I'm just holding on for dear life, you know, just holding on to the pommel. And then, all of a sudden, and I don't know what happened, I don't know if she whistled at it or if it was just tired or what, but it just stopped instantly, right in its tracks. And guess where I went? <laughs> right over the head, right into the pile, right? So, that was my experience with horses as a young man. And so, for me, Horses have commanded an incredible amount of respect and distance. I've been on a horse a few times since then and still just like, yeah, it's too much for me. And it's amazing to me that simply by placing a small piece of metal into the mouth of this powerful animal, a tiny human being can control the entire beast. And if you control its mouth, you control its entire body. And in the same way, James is saying, if we can control our own mouths, we can control our whole bodies and beings. So if you can control your tongue, then you've really got your act together. But let's continue. Verse 4, James says, "...consider the ships, too, which are so large and driven by strong winds, and yet are controlled by the smallest rudder wherever the will of the pilot wants." This is the same concept that was articulated by the ancient Greek mathematician Archimedes when he said, Give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it, and I shall move the world. One small piece of a ship, one tiny little piece of the ship, controls the whole thing. But the the small piece, though, is guided by the will of the pilot, just like the bit in a horse's mouth is controlled by the will of the rider. And the picture that unfolds through both of these metaphors, then, is the incredible influence and power that a small thing has over a larger thing. So James says in verse 5, So the tongue is both a small member and it boasts of great things. It's able to do great things. And verse 5 gives us really the key to this whole thing. Even though the bit and the rudder physically control the direction of the horse and of the ship, It's the will of the rider. It's the will of the pilot that is truly in charge, right? The horse goes where the skilled rider, Kayla, not me, wants it to go, right? The ship goes where the skilled pilot wants it to go. And if the rider or the pilot isn't skilled, what happens? Verse 6, all hell will break loose, When we're talking about the gospel, the core reality then is our hearts, not our tongues, or not our mouths. As Jesus clarified this for his disciples in Matthew chapter 15, he said, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from where? From the heart. And this is what defiles a person. So so we will either speak from a good heart, or we will speak from an evil heart. And as the pilot's will controls the ship via the rudder, our heart controls our lives and is expressed in our words. And a heart that's transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ will be displayed in how we use our words. Because the mouth will only speak what the heart produces, and the content of your heart is evident by what comes out of your mouth. Put simply, your words define you. Not, though, by dictating who you are, but by revealing who you are. Your words define you. Not by, They don't dictate who you are, they, de- they re- reveal Who you are? So here's the question: What comes out of your mouth? Is it good or is it evil? Is it life or death? Is it healing or wounding? Because just as just as just as words can be used as weapons, they can also be used as medicine. I mean, you know the cutting pain of a disparaging. Or hurtful word that is aimed at you and you also know the power of a word of encouragement or affirmation gracious words are like a honeycomb sweetness to the soul and health to the body and because words are a big deal the followers of Jesus will be people whose words arise from a a God-transformed heart. And Christ's disciples will use their words in a different way, in a counter-cultural way. Consider from the New Testament what this transformed speech ought to look like. Colossians 3, starting at verse 8. Paul writes this, "'You must now put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth.'" Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Colossians 4.6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Ephesians 4.25, therefore having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. And then verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now the obvious question for us this morning is, is this. Okay, but how? How is my speech supposed to be transformed? Because I'm pretty good at using speech as a weapon. If you're like me, the words of James three two resonate with you completely. For we all stumble in many ways. Check, that's me. I'm not a perfect person. You're not a perfect person. What hope is there for us stumblers? And I long for my words to be life-giving rather than death-producing. I hope you do too. But I, but I know through experience that Just doubling down and working harder and trying to control my sin through my effort changes nothing in the long run, because it will never change our hearts. Thankfully, though, we have a secret weapon in our back pocket, and his name is Jesus. We have the gospel. We have all of its life giving fullness, its transformative power. We have a Savior who is able to identify with us in every way because He became one of us, and yet He was without sin, never stumbled, overcame our sin through His death and resurrection, and then through the gift of faith, gives that to us and allows us to share in His death and resurrection in that reality to receive forgiveness, and yes, even forgiveness for your destructive speech, for my destructive speech. We have a Savior who gives us the Holy Spirit freely to transform our hearts and make us into new creations and then fill us and empower us to embody the gospel with our mouths. Without Jesus' help and without the Spirit's power, we will never be able to control our tongues and embody the gospel with our speech. So, brothers and sisters, our only hope is Jesus. And so this morning as we come once again to the communion table, we must run... Don't walk to Jesus, run to Jesus, don't knock each other over, because we need his grace. So come, as we remember his sacrifice, his body broken, his blood poured out, and come and ask again this morning for his forgiving grace, or perhaps for the first time for you, ask for his forgiveness and his grace, for his daily sustenance and strength. For his spirit, spirit to work on you and, and bear fruit in you, to convict you of the places where you've fallen short and to ask for help. And as the spirit bears fruit, one of, the, one of those fruit being self-control, ask him for that to become part of your life through your heart and through your words. So come, come beloved and receive the grace of Christ because there is gospel hope for stumblers like you and me. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come again knowing that we need Jesus today. Lord, that even this week, maybe even this day, maybe even this morning, our words have cut. We've used them as weapons. We've used them to complain and blame and maybe even complain against you and blame you. And so, Father, we ask for your forgiveness. And we're grateful that you offer it in and through Jesus. And so we look to you, Jesus, our the author and perfecter of our faith for the joy set before you endured the cross and scorned its shame and you now sit at the right hand of the throne of God where you intercede for us, you pray for us, you strengthen us, you've sent your spirit to to embody us, to fill us, to empower us And so, God, we ask that this week you would transform us and help us to embody the gospel wherever we go in the way that we use our mouth. We pray this and ask for your strength. In Jesus' name, amen.